Blog Talk Radio. So you want your charity to succeed. It's no secret that combining online and offline techniques is the key to modern-day fundraising success, and practical advice is what you need. The Nonprofit Coach with Ted Hart is the perfect place to learn from experts around the world who, along with our host, provide advice you can use. Ted Hart is without a doubt one of the foremost nonprofit thought leaders. Also a successful author, his books cover a broad range of topics from major gift fundraising to use of social media and how to succeed online. Ted lectures around the world, but now he's here for you. From the latest in charity news, technology, fundraising, and social networking, Ted and his guests help you maneuver through this economic downturn in the charitable sector to greater levels of efficiency and fundraising success. Remember, this is a live call-in show. Become part of the show by adding your voice. Call now at 347-324-3080. After the show, you can find all our podcasts at tedhart.com. Just click on radio links. Don't forget to dial 347-324-3080. Now, welcome the host of The Nonprofit Coach, Ted Hart. And welcome here to The Nonprofit Coach. As the announcer mentioned, this is a live show, so you can call in. But if you're shy, you can also join us over in the chat room. And I do see uh, some folks over in the chat room. You can also email us at tedhart at tedhart.com. This is Tuesday, September 18th, and I'm coming to you live from the national headquarters of the Charities Aid Foundation of America in Washington, D.C. As always here on the Nonprofit Coach, we start with page one news. You can follow along here on page one news by going to tedhart.com and click on radio links. Over in the radio links today, you'll find a uh, notice from MarketingSherpa.com. Over on Marketing Sherpa, they're helping you out with your email design by giving you five insights into improving open and click-through rates. Some of the suggestions that they have uh, are pretty simple, like setting a single goal, uh, but also uh, help you step through on how to get your email to have priority and to be read. So read all about that from MarketingSherpa.com over at Ted Hart. Dot com. Click on radio links. It's my pleasure here on the Nonprofit Coach to be sharing with you the very best of prior shows of the Nonprofit Coach. You'll find over in the newsletter today our popular podcast, and what we're sharing with you over the next several shows are the top 10 podcasts of all time. So our listeners have voted by how they listen uh, to who are the most popular. Uh, speakers here on the Nonprofit Coach. It's my pleasure uh, today to draw your attention and to welcome here live on the Nonprofit Coach, Steve Schatz. Uh, Steve, welcome here again to the Nonprofit Coach. Hi, Ted. Uh, thanks for inviting me back to your program. Hey, it's great to have you here back on the show. Now, you were with us back on February 22nd, 2011, and your podcast has been voted by our listeners as one of the very best podcasts in the history of the nonprofit coach. Now, you uh, were speaking on that day about effective telephone fundraising, and in fact, you have been voted number nine overall in the top ten. Uh, why well, it's are you a so real honor. Why are you so good at what you do? Well, well let me say it's a, a real honor uh, being in your top ten. I know there's some stiff competition and some really gifted uh, fundraisers out there, 
And, uh, you know, I've, I've just been delighted uh, with the um, reception to the book, Effective Telephone Fundraising, which um, I believe is still the only book uh, on the market devoted to the topic of uh, telephone fundraising and uh, specifically how to write scripts uh, and be an effective communicator and fundraiser using uh, the telephone medium. Yeah, it's a terrific book, Effective Telephone Fundraising, The Ultimate Guide to Raising Money Online. Uh, now, Steve, that is available over on Amazon.com. Is that right? It is. It's uh, published by John Wiley. It's available through Amazon and the John Wiley website. Yeah, so that's Wiley.com. So do you have a couple of tips that you can share here on Page One News on why your book is uh, still the only one and the very best out there if you want to succeed with telephone fundraising? Well, uh, I think that it's the, par- partially successful because of the style that it's written in. Uh, it's not uh, a typical dour uh, fundraising uh, book, but it's more written in a more humorous, almost a dummy's style uh, with uh, some humorous cartoons in it. And uh, I, I have uh, several dozen uh, what I call telephone fundraising rules in the book and I thought it would be of value to share some of those with your with your listeners uh, this afternoon. Yeah, that'd be and, a real uh, treat if you could do that. Could you share a couple with us today? Sure. Rule uh, first rule I'd like to discuss is uh, quote a telephone fundraiser should introduce themselves to the prospect in a way that as closely identifies them with the organization they represent as they truthfully can, as truthfully as possible. And uh, what this does is it increases the telephone fundraiser's stature in the mind of the prospect and uh, leads to uh, more effective uh, two-way communication. For example, uh, I might uh, address uh, you. Uh, Well, Mr. Hart, I'm Steve Schatz, and uh, I'm a volunteer for XYZ organization. Or in the case of a college or university, uh, well, Mr. Hart, I'm Steve Schatz, and I'm working with Bill Jones, our alumni director if you could legitimately say that. If Bill, for example, is uh, um, someone who is uh, uh, overseeing the program and might, a name that might be recognized by the prospect. Now, what about uh, well, nonprofits mm-hmm. that are hiring outside counsel? Um, how do they draw a connection when they're really with the third-party firm? Right, that's a little more difficult. Uh, but uh, in the case of an outside counsel or you know, um, uh, hired fundraisers, uh, they can legitimately say the organization they're working with, and in some states that's required, but also say that you know they're assisting uh, XYZ organization in this important effort, and they've been brought on board to uh, you know contact uh, our they, our constituency uh, as personally as possible. Okay. So uh, in that way, uh, even though it's a hired firm they can identify themselves as closely as possible with the mission of the organization. Um, and, what you know, other that, tips do you have? Well, in the telephone medium, uh, you have perhaps uh, two, three, four minutes, uh, very precious time to accomplish a lot, but it's always crucial that you develop a relationship with the prospect. Uh, just because it's the telephone medium does not uh, obviate you from the standard fundraising rule that you should develop relationships and develop rapport, even if it's for a few seconds. And this brings me to a, another rule, 
that kind of is obvious at first, but uh, isn't isn't uh, very much evident in the calls I receive at home, and that's you want to address the prospect by his or her name and use their name frequently throughout the course of the call. And this helps personalize the call and lays the foundation for dialogue, for two-way communication, which I feel is crucial to have a successful result. And then, and this brings you quickly to another rule, uh, quote, ask closed-ended questions very early in the call, questions that you are assured of getting a yes response to. What would be an example of a question that you're sure you're going to get a yes to? Uh, in the case of a college or university, well, Mr. Hart, I, I see that you're an alum from the class of 1980. Is that right? You know, assuming you have this information in your database and you know it to be accurate, that's a nice, sure-fire way to get a yes response and hopefully set a stage for, for some dialogue. And say in the case of um, a subscriber, uh, for example, to a theater series, well, Mr. Hart, uh, I see that you're a subscriber to the Friday afternoon matinee series. Is that right? Okay. And uh, little questions like these can get... So it's uh, showing that you know a little bit uh, about the person and you're trying to build rapport. Exactly so. And you're, what you're doing is capitalizing on an already existing relationship. And okay. I think that's, that's crucial because it helps gain the confidence of the prospect to continue on with the call and hopefully steer it in the direction of, of where you want it to to to, uh, to go next, and um, yeah, some follow-up questions. Then then you can get to some open-ended questions uh, like, um, well, Mr. Hart, when when was the last time you had a chance to uh, visit the campus of XYZ University? Or and then at that point, the, you're trying to draw them into a dialogue rather than just have yes/no answers. Exactly so. And, and this is one philosophy, I think, that runs throughout the book, and it's a philosophy that's well-received and is simply good fundraising, is that um, telephone pitches that are just one-way uh, street communication where you're, you're forcing a message down uh, the, the ear of an unwilling prospect is not going to be as effective as good fundraising, establishing a relationship, and, uh, and creating a dialogue. Well, Steve, it's uh, clear to me why you've been chosen as one of the uh, top podcasts in the history of the Nonprofit Coach Radio Show. You're very knowledgeable uh, on this topic. We encourage all of our listeners to make sure that they get a copy uh, of your book. Uh, Steve, thank you again for coming on to the Nonprofit Coach and sharing your wisdom and your insight for our listeners. Well, thank you for having me, and let me say again, it's uh, quite an honor being in the top ten on your program, and uh, much success to you, and I'm anxious to uh, hear the rest of the program. And I'll just uh, know for our listeners, uh, Steve is a, a good personal friend of mine, and Steve, I'm looking forward to seeing you Tuesday night at uh, the Orioles Ballpark, and hopefully we'll have a win. Uh, and tonight. I'll be rooting for the Orioles all the way. All right, well, good, good. That means you can come. All right, I'll see you on uh, Tuesday night, and thank you again for being here on The Nonprofit Coach. Uh, back thank here on The Nonprofit Coach, just a quick little shout-out to uh, Jeff uh, Janak uh, up in uh, Toronto. Uh, Jeff, thanks so much for the Twitter shout-out. Uh, you can all join us over on Twitter, at Ted Hart. We've got 1,811 followers uh, right now, and I'm very pleased uh, for those of you who have followed this show, you know that we do use clout.com as a way to measure our success on Twitter and social media. 
and right now our score on clout is 60, and that may be close to an all-time high. Uh, back here on the Nonprofit Coach uh, radio show, I want to uh, bring another uh, good friend of the show here uh, onto uh, page one news. Melanie Mathos is here with us uh, from Blackbaud. Melanie, thank you for coming back to the Nonprofit Coach. Sure, thanks. Thanks for having uh, us. You folks at Blackbaud have got a really big show coming up. Why don't you tell my listeners all about BBCon 2012? Yes, we're very excited. There's a, a flurry of activity happening right here on Daniel Island, soon to be transported to uh, D.C. We're having our 13th uh, annual BBCon Blackbuds Conference for Nonprofits at the Gaylord National Hotel in National Harbor on uh, September 30th through the 2nd, and we're glad to have you back uh, broadcasting live, Ted. Well, it's, it's going to be great. I mean, you're, you're not going to be very far from our offices here at CAF America. Here uh, we're, we're uh, not far from National Harbor. Um, I'm thrilled to be back. Uh, we're going to be, uh, uh, let's just let our listeners know that uh, they can join us live here on a very special edition uh, of the Nonprofit Coach. We're going to be live from BBCon on October 1st. Now, that's a Monday, so everybody uh, note your calendars. The radio show is typically on a Tuesday at 12 noon. Uh, but because this is BBCon, we're going to be October 1st, which is a Monday, starting at 11.30. And this is a special 90-minute uh, edition of, uh, of the Nonprofit Coach. So tell us how that's going to work uh, with what's going on at BBCon. Sure. We're actually going to be broadcasting BBCon radio from the front of the expo hall. And uh, we're pleased to have Mark Chardon, our CEO, join you to talk about nonprofit trends and product roadmaps, as well as uh, industry guru Roger Craver talking about uh, the effectiveness of social media and fundraising, a topic I know that's near and dear to your heart. And then also uh, Brian Stallings from TopTix talking about the next generation of our ticketing solution, the Patron Edge. Oh, well, that's great. Well, you've got uh, a terrific lineup uh, for the show, so thank you for working so hard on that. Now, I know registration is going so strong. Are there any slots left? They're in the tens, so <laughs> yeah, we're so still accepting If someone wanted to attend, they'd probably have to move pretty quickly at this point. How would they register for BBCon if they still wanted to attend? Sure, they can go to bbconference.com and all the information's there. We have about 160 sessions, some great keynotes lined up, and we're really excited about this year's show, so thanks so much. Well, it's great to be back. We'll be, uh, again, uh, live at BBCon uh, on October 1st. Now, October 2nd, uh, is a Tuesday, and that's a regular time for the radio show, the Nonprofit Coach Radio Show. We will have the regular show as well, so we're going to have back-to-back sessions that week, October 1st and October 2nd. Melanie Mathers uh, from BlackBot, thank you for coming on and sharing the great news and the great opportunities at BBCon 2012. I look forward to seeing you at National Harbor. Great. Thanks so much, Ted. All right, take care. Back here on page one news, uh, just a shout-out to uh, the terrific folks over at Indiana University, congratulations. Uh, the Indiana Commission for Higher Education uh, just last Friday approved uh, the plans for Indiana University to create the country's very first college-level school of philanthropy. Uh, so congratulations to the folks there. This is an expansion on the work of the very eminently uh, regarded Center on Philanthropy uh, for uh, uh, Indiana, uh, Indiana Universities flagship Bloomington uh, campus. So uh, congratulations to, uh, to everyone over at uh, the, uh, uh, the school in Indiana for 
creating the first school on philanthropy. Back over at tedhart.com and the radio links, uh, you will find uh, a notation of our LinkedIn uh, um, service. Now, we do host uh, the People to People Fundraising LinkedIn group. Right now, there are 1,948 of your colleagues in that group actively discussing all sorts of topics about fundraising online and offline. question is, who's going to be 2,000? Uh, will that be you? So make sure you go to p2pfundraising.org or just go to linkedin.com and search for the People to People Fundraising LinkedIn group and make sure that you join that group, which is now very close to having uh, 2,000 uh, subscribers. Uh, speaking about LinkedIn, uh, kudos to LinkedIn. They have just launched, for all of us here in the nonprofit sector, just yesterday uh, they launched Board Connect for Nonprofits. Now, LinkedIn's Board Connect for Nonprofits is a new board member recruiting program that enables nonprofits to easily tap into LinkedIn's 175 million plus strong network of professionals. This uh, is potentially a big leap forward for all of the uh, uh, 1.4 plus million nonprofit organizations, all of whom need a uh, nonprofit board, all of whom need stronger board members. So with nonprofits needing to fill uh, the estimated 2 million uh, empty board seats annually, LinkedIn's Board Connect uh, is looking to be part of that solution. So uh, you can go to uh, the uh, LinkedIn Board Connect, uh, and uh, all you need to do is set up your nonprofit LinkedIn company page. Um, you can learn all about this at nonprofits.linkedin.com, or you can just go to tedhart.com and click on radio links. We've got the link directly over to the story uh, about the social media guide for nonprofits and LinkedIn's new Board Connect for nonprofits. Uh, next up here on, uh, on the, uh, the nonprofit coach, um, I want to uh, just share with you some of the upcoming shows that we have here on uh, the Nonprofit Coach. Um, next week is our partnership with Green Nonprofit. So this is the monthly green show for um, uh, the Nonprofit Coach radio show. So don't miss the opportunity uh, to catch Barbara Wiseman, who's going to be live on the Nonprofit Coach 12 noon next week. We just mentioned with Melanie Mathos that we're going to be live at the BBCon conference October 1st at 1130, followed the very next day with a regular Nonprofit Coach radio show, and Linda Lysakowski is going to be here talking about capital campaigns. We're going to be following that up on October 9th with Sean Triner, uh, who is one of the smartest uh, people in global giving. He's going to be coming to us live from Australia. Uh, and uh, he is uh, truly a global fundraising guru. Uh, on October 16th, uh, we're going to um, have Dave Simmons uh, from the Leukemia Foundation, um, uh, who's going to be here on the Nonprofit Coach. Uh, and then on uh, uh, October 23rd, uh, David LaGreca is going to be here with us, and he's a, a very smart guy, and it's a good follow-up to the story here on page one for the LinkedIn Board Development Group. He's with a group um, called uh, Governance Matters, and he's going to be helping you uh, with how to build and expand and strengthen your board members. So with that, we're going to wrap up with uh, Page One News. We're going to move, be moving straight on over to Page Two. We're over here on page two with Simone Zuayo, ACFRE, 
Uh, she's one of the most thoughtful and inspirational and provocative leaders in the philanthropic sector, a good friend of mine, and uh, her new book, well, actually, uh, I'm going to let her tell you all about this. It's the third edition of a book that is a must on every fundraiser's shelf, and that is Strategic Fund Development, Building Profitable Relationships uh, That Last. Simone is a consultant specializing in fund development, strategic planning, and board development. She works all over the world with all sorts of or, uh, uh, nonprofit organizations. She teaches as part of the master's program for philanthropy and development at St. Mary's University in Minnesota. Um, her books, she's had several that, uh, that she has worked on, uh, and the one that we're talking about today is, of course, uh, Strategic Fund Development. Welcome back here to the nonprofit coach, Simone Joyeau. Nice to be back. Thanks for asking me, and good to hear your voice, Ted. Yeah, great to uh, to have you here on the show. You know, I'm going to start right off with uh, a good friend of ours who I consider, uh, like you, to be one of the smartest, uh, brightest lights in the nonprofit sector, and that's Guy Malabone. He says of your book, I admire this book. It's not just about fundraising. It's about building strong organizations, and without strong organizations, you can't raise money. If you're an executive director or CEO looking to better understand fund development, this is an excellent resource. The chapter on strategic planning and how to enable your board members to help you with fundraising will prove valuable on its own. It's a great uh, contribution uh, to the sector. Simone, uh, this is your third edition. Not everybody gets to a third edition. Why are you so good at what you do? Oh, gee. Um, you know, I think maybe one of the reasons that I may be effective and that I think anyone can be effective is seeing the bigger picture. I think sometimes we just get caught up in all of the little details, and I'm not saying that's not important. It is. But the big picture, for example, in fundraising, is that fundraising is not about money. It's about the donor's hopes and aspirations and dreams. It's about the effectiveness of the mission and the impact that an organization has with uh, those who are served. It's about having a strong, effective board. It's about knowing how to argue and plan within your organization. And so when I thought about writing the first edition of this book back in 1996, it, was, it really was my chance, if you will, Ted, to tell people what I was worried about in fundraising and to try to put fundraising into the broader scope of the organization, as, as Guy Malabone said in his, his kind words about the book. Yeah, and, and you know what's, what's interesting is, and I know that you like having the moniker of being somewhat provocative uh, in, uh, in the nonprofit sector, but did, did you just mention that the first edition was 1996? Yeah, the first edition was 1996. Yeah, so, uh, so this book has got really long, long legs. Uh, what is it about this book that people keep coming back to? Now, Guy specifically uh, mentioned um, the the, uh, the topic on strategic planning um, and enabling your board members to uh, help with fundraising. That that's an issue that every nonprofit um, uh, needs help with. Absolutely. Um, you know what I did when I came up with the concept of the book was to talk about four critical relationships that would make fund development more effective. And the first relationship was defined as the relationship within the organization. So whether you're doing fundraising or anything else in a company, for-profit or non-profit, 
You have to be able to make decisions. You have to be able to manage change. You have to do group process. You can't sit alone in your office. You've got a board. You've got a committee, whatever. So that was sort of the first relationship. The second relationship was, again, no matter whether you're a for-profit or non-profit, you actually have to be relevant to the community. And that, to me, we define our relevance through really good strategic planning. You know, you don't invent a plan to fulfill your mission. You test your mission through strategic planning. So that was my second relationship. You know, people can buy this book and use it and not care anything about fundraising. There's a very, very deep chapter on strategic planning with sample plans, et cetera. The, I wanted to, uh, if, I, if I can, explore yeah. uh, that concept with you a little bit more because it's one that, as I lecture and I, I provide training to boards of directors, I keep coming back to um, because just as you outlined, uh, I find that most boards of directors end up planning, putting together their budgets, and worrying about the future of their organizations within the concept, uh, the, the context of their current budget, their current staffing, and sort of the current four walls. What programs do they have? Yeah. What staffing do they have? And, and rare is it that a board of directors actually even understands the concept of stepping all the way back and saying, why do we do what we do? Not how do we do more of it or how do we salvage this organization around the concept, but let let me give you an example. I've worked with so many different organizations where they're struggling with fundraising, and and one in particular uh, comes to mind that was running a nonprofit daycare center. And they were having a really – their census had had been dropping over the the last few years. Money was tight. The the government had cut back on subsidies uh, for low-income child uh, support. And, and there were a lot of competitors, for-profit competitors, that were really sort of eating their lunch. They had better services, um, and while they were a little bit more expensive, families were finding the money to put their children in those, in those daycare centers. Um, so I really kind of set them back on their heels when I said, why are you running a daycare? <laughs> exactly. And, and, and they said, well, that's what we do. That's, you know, that's why we're trying to, you know, it's our job to save the daycare. And I said, okay. Maybe that is, but what's your mission? And so, so we went back and we, we found a mission, which was not easy. Nobody knew what it was. We sort of had to search for it. We finally found a mission printed uh, in their bylaws and come to find out that their mission was to serve the needs of women and children. <laughs> so that was their mission. So yeah. I, I then helped them understand that, they, that prior boards had just decided that the way that they were going to help women and children was to open a daycare. But the daycare itself has nothing to do with the mission, and it's their job as the board to further define the mission, to determine what the needs of women and children are, and to meet the mission not to run a daycare. And that, do you, that just seems to be a disconnect for boards of directors that seems way too pervasive. Yes, I would agree with that. And I would suggest that in addition to, as you say, in your example, they were running a daycare center, which they had decided was a strategy to respond to the original mission of helping women women and girls, and maybe they shouldn't be running a daycare center anymore. But at the same time, I believe in really good strategic planning, we even question whether the mission is valid anymore. Yeah, and that, and and that so comes we back could, to uh, a concept yeah. that, that, yeah. that I, I like to talk to a lot of my guests about um, that I call the dream factor. And, and it seems that boards of directors – have lost sight of the ability to dream for a better community and their role in that because they get caught up in meeting budgets and, 
and buildings and staffing and, and, and bylaws and policies that some boards of directors, I would even say most boards of directors, don't even know that it's their job to be the dreamers. Yeah, that's a very nice um, a very nice description. And you know what I particularly like about what you just said, Ted, was the dream for a better community. And actually, I write about this in um, in Strategic Fund Development, this this third edition. The concept that if we go back even further, to me, is that the purpose of philanthropy, voluntary action for the common good, the purpose of philanthropy is to build a better community. And so no matter what nonprofit we found, and I have founded too, no matter what nonprofit we work for or volunteer on as a board member, our job is to keep saying, is what we are doing still relevant? In fact, step back further, is our mission relevant? Because if Can our mission is no longer... For, I think that's a really uh, important concept, but one that is particularly difficult yep. for boards of directors to understand as a concept when I think, and maybe I'm wrong, I think a lot of board members really view their approach to, is getting the money to um, meet the budget. Right. But, of course, a board, if we look at governance, wearing my governance hat, the purpose of a board is to ensure the health and effectiveness of the corporation. And part of that, that's, that's nice, a nice little crisp definition, you know, the purpose of a board, the process of governance, is to ensure the health and effectiveness of the corporation. But there are critical functions within that. And one function is to ensure that the organization, its mission, its programs and services are still relevant. And if not, to shut it down in triumph or to adjust the mission to be more relevant or to adjust the programs. But it's about adjusting the mission. Um, do you remember in the olden days, Ted, when, when you and I were younger? Do you remember are are you dating us now, Simone? Yes, right. however old, right. I, but do you remember the little... I'm um, with you. Go ahead. The little milk things, containers for March of Dimes that we used to take out on Halloween or that kids took out on Halloween. Sure. March sure. of Dimes' original mission was um, eradicating polio. So... So what happens when they eradicated polio? I realize it's coming back in some places, but when they eradicated it, they had two choices. Go out of business in triumph or alter the mission. And they altered the mission to birth defects, eradicating birth defects. So the purpose of a board and the staff is to get rid of their own territorial feelings, their own self-importance, their own... Um, former thinking and former success and say, are we relevant? And you can't say that in a room staring at each other. You have to do market research. You have to go out and look into the community. And that's what I believe good strategic planning is. And no that's how uh, the essence you of your book. We're going to be right back after a break, Simona. We do have uh, a, uh, uh, a caller on the switchboard. Caller, just hang in there. Uh, we'll be with you in just a few moments. If you'd like to join us here on the Nonprofit Coach, you can call into 347-324-3080, and we'll be right back after this break.
talk to you today about a new and exciting enterprise that's poised to make a definitive impact on the nonprofit marketplace, and that's a company called Fund Coaches. Fund Coaches is the only premier online fundraising institute to exist today. Fund Coaches helps fundraising professionals and lay nonprofit leaders like you to improve your fundraising efforts. You have to try Fund Coaches to see what it's all about. And as a matter of fact, when we get back to some, with Simone, we'll ask her a few questions about Fund Coaches because she's also involved, uh, as I am. All of the Fund Coaches training modules are short, sweet, and meaningful. Fund Coaches modules are taught by top experts in the field, and all of the Fund Coaches modules are ridiculously affordable. If that wasn't enough, the good folks at Fund Coaches are giving the listeners of the Nonprofit Coach Radio Show a 50% discount. Now, get your pens out because I'm going to have a discount code for you in just a second on all the modules purchased this month. To take advantage of this very special offer, go to fundcoaches.com, and if you have any trouble finding that link, just go to tedhart.com, click on radio links. We've got it right there for you. When you register, all you need to get your 50% discount is the following discount code. Now, that's NLS, that's Nancy Larry Sam, B-I-N, Boy Indigo Nancy U-P, so that's N-L-S-B-I-N-U-P, and you'll find that over in the newsletter today as well. So funcoaches.com is where you want to go, and your 50% discount code is N-L-S-B-I-N-U-P, and we're going to head right back over to the show. Remember, our podcasts and archives are always available 24 hours a day at tedhart.com. Click on radio links. If you're listening live today, the phone lines are open. Call in and ask a question by dialing 347-324-3080. Now, back to the Nonprofit Coach with Ted Hart. We're back here live with Simone Joyo, our guest here on page two of the Nonprofit Coach. And, Simone, we do have a caller. Caller, you're here live on the Nonprofit Coach. you have a question for Simone? Hi, Simone. Um, um, this is Brittany. Um, in Chapter 8 of your book, you talk about the fourth relationship. Could you help me with concrete tips on how to engage my board members in supporting our fundraising? Um, I know that they're supportive, but they're also busy. Is it difficult to know what to do and how? Yeah, Brittany, I think that's one of those challenges we all face regularly, so don't feel like you're alone. Uh, I think it starts first way before you get your board members, and by that I mean when board members are recruited, they need to be screened in an interview just like staff would be. And in that screening interview, we need to share with them expectations. Now, you'll actually find performance expectations for board members on my website in my uh, resources section in the library. Now, tell our listeners where they can find your website. My website is my name, simonjoyo.com. So that's S-I-M-O-N-E-J-O-Y-A-U-X.com. And anybody who has trouble spelling your name, they can go to tedhart.com, and we have everything right over in the radio links today. Yeah, it's one of those difficult names. So, Brittany, the thing is is that first board members need to know that they're going to be asked to help do some relationship-building fundraising activities. Notice I start out by saying they're going to be asked to do some relationship-building and fundraising activities. But, but, Simone, let me just j- jump in and just ask, what if you've inherited a board and you didn't have that opportunity to have that discussion and somehow it was missed? 
what do then you do? what you do is you just go one-on-one to board members, very carefully explaining to them how very important and helpful they can be. And then what we have to do is try to demystify the fundraising process for them. So they think probably, because so many fundraisers say this, I want you to go to your friends and ask for money. That's bad. You don't want to ask your board members to trespass on either personal or professional relationships. So what you want to do is say to them, please help identify those you think might be interested. So that's, that's one way of sort of reshaping it. But then, Brittany, the other thing is to come up with all of the things they might be able to do to help and to explain those things to them and to personally negotiate with them to do it. Any number of board members will actually help if you give them a small, easy-to-understand task. And I don't mean easy to understand like they're stupid. I mean easy to understand because they don't do this regularly. Like so what? Thank what you, would Carl. be an example of, of something small yeah. that a board member could handle? Thank you, Calls. You know, I'm on a board. I get a list of board of donors to call. And when I say a list, Brittany I'm, and Ted, I'm talking about five names, right? And I'm asked within a two- or three-week period or even a month, could I make these thank you calls? And it's not a solicitation. It's merely a thank you call. All together with those five names, Maybe I get on the phone with somebody who actually wants to talk so I'm able to represent the organization. Maybe that's a 10-minute call. Usually it's a three-minute call. A board member can find time. So you come up with those sorts of things. For example, write handwritten thank you notes. Brittany, your office sends out the formal thank you, but I serve on this board. I'm asked periodically to write three thank you notes. And, you know, it's a note card where I write, Dear Brittany, Thank you so much for your gift to the theater company. Because of you, we can produce plays. Simon Choyot, comma, board member. It doesn't take long to do that. You can take a board member along with you, Brittany, when you go to talk to a foundation. The board member's there just to say, yes, we, the board, are committed, and to tell a story about the mission. So come up with very easy, measurable things. Now, in my book, Strategic Fund Development, there are sample plans and also sample menus of choices, you know, like a menu they can choose from. Those are all online in the book's online um, uh, website. But also you'll find menu of choices. I think I wrote a, um, a column in the Nonprofit Quarterly. I'm a web columnist for the Nonprofit Quarterly. Um, I write a column called Unraveling Development, and if you go online to the Nonprofit Quarterly and search for a column that talks about engaging board members or menu of choices, I think I have an entire list of things in there. Those are very uh, helpful uh, uh, tips, and I hope that they do help uh, Brittany. She did uh, drop off, um, so she didn't have a good, good chance to ask a follow-up question. Uh, but I did want to explore further, getting deeper into your book, on some of the tips that you have for actually developing a plan um, that can help you ex- execute all these things. And what's the, the board's role in creating that plan? Well, you're talking about the fund, creating the fundraising plan? Yeah, a, fun, a fundraising plan yep. for your organization, because yep. I'm guessing you don't advocate 
that it, it's just sort of organic, that you should plan your way to success. Right. Yeah. I, I, I'm a big one on big picture thinking and then actually writing it down with very specific detail. And so I believe that writing a fund development plan, and, and you fra- the way you phrased it was perfect, Ted. It's the organization's fundraising plan. It's not the staff's. It doesn't belong to the development office. It belongs Isn't that to the organization. What often happens is that yeah. uh, boards of directors seek to offload that to staff. So it's your plan, exactly. you execute it, you raise the money, yep. and, and then we'll spend it. Right. And so the process of creating either a fundraising plan or a strategic plan for the whole institution has to be a process that engages the board in conversations. I, I like having a board-level fundraising or fund development committee, and I use that committee to talk a little bit about what should be in the plan. And then I, once the staff writes the plan, the board actually has to read it and adopt it. The, the role of the staff is important because the staff are the experts. So they don't just say to the board or to the development committee, so what do you think we should do? <laughs> you know, the staff comes in with, this is the best way to raise money. How might we help convince the board to do this? What do we think the barriers might be? So it's that kind of both teaching, consulting, facilitating conversation and then inviting um, board member conversation. Simone, we're going to take just a quick break. When we come back, I'm, I'm going to ask you to uh, uh, step into the uh, the big question that comes up in so many different scenarios when you're talking about planning and fundraising is the role of special events. Uh, we'll okay. be right back on uh, Joyo here on the Nonprofit Coach Radio Show. Every day, millions of people are online, many of whom want to help, volunteer, and donate to a good cause. Nonprofit organizations can use many Google tools to reach potential donors around the world and raise more money. And as an approved nonprofit, it doesn't cost a thing. It's all free. Google Grants helps you promote your website with free advertising on Google.com through the AdWords program. With Google AdWords, you create ads and choose words or phrases related to your nonprofit organization. When people search on Google using one of your phrases, your ad will appear next to the Google search results under the Sponsored Links section. AdWords allows you to target certain geographic areas, dates, and times of day for your ads to appear. YouTube for Nonprofits is another tool that can boost donations to your organization. The program offers a number of perks that get your message out there and drive viewers to take action and donate. You can list your organization on YouTube's nonprofit channel and add call-to-action overlays on your videos to drive viewers to donate. Need help analyzing your website traffic and marketing effectiveness? Google Analytics is a free tool that will give you rich insight and help you increase the number of people that visit and donate to your site. Google Analytics can be invaluable to many people in your organization, such as development directors, marketing staff, and your web team. There are many other tools that can help you reach more donors and raise funds, like Google Checkout, where you can process credit card donations with no transaction fee, Google Sites to create a free website, and Website Optimizer, where you can figure out the best landing pages to turn site visitors into donors. To get started, apply for Google for Nonprofits today. And we're back here uh, with Simone Joyo here on the Nonprofit Coach. Uh, Simone, I I raised uh, a very difficult question for a lot of uh, nonprofits when it comes to putting together their overall 
fundraising plan. What is the role of special events that you advise? Well, I, let me start out with the my personal bias and professional bias, which is I despise them. Um, I was I scarred well, early. So I, 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 that's why I wanted to give you that opening. Yeah, yeah. I was scarred early. I was the executive director of an arts organization in Michigan when I began my career. I did a three-day outdoor art festival. You probably think it rained. Well, it did, but there was a tornado too. <laughs> so, I'm, and I'm I don't sorry, remember I anything laugh. after that. I can see However, why you're scarred. Yeah. However, but that, but that's, that's weather. I mean. They, and, and I can see where you know that would that would be uh, you know a difficult thing for anybody to go through. But the, the broader picture for charities right. all over uh, the country, all over the world that listen to the show, um, is that boards of directors, at least in my regard, um, tend to sort of gravitate towards you know let's put on a show. Um, yep. Why is that? That 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 is viewed as fundraising, whereas other things such as uh, direct mail and personal visits and grant writing and things of that sort that are far more likely to have a positive ROI for the organization um, are viewed as staff functions. Well, I think the reason why board members, other fundraising volunteers, and sometimes staff too, like special events is for two reasons. One, we're not asking you to give anything, Ted, we're asking you to buy a ticket to the golf tournament, and you love golf. Oh, so okay. we somehow feel it's like the candy bars that kids sell. That's, um, I think that's one thing. I think the second thing is that far too many board members, as well as staff, think that a virtue of doing a special event is all of the publicity you get. And how that, you know, makes you famous in the public relations value, which is a false assumption because no one is paying attention to your golf tournament who doesn't like to play golf. So all of that said, I think that we know that a balanced mix of solicitation strategies is a good idea. So a fundraising event can be a good idea if, you go through a very, very rigorous analysis of multiple criteria, which, because I got so frustrated by all these sorts of things, I actually detailed in the third edition of Strategic Fund Development a whole series of criteria to examine for any solicitation strategy, including special events. Want me to share some of those? Yes, please do. So one is the very thing you said, Ted, return on investment. Will the investment of time and the cost of doing the event and the energy expended, will there be sufficient return on investment? What's the level of risk? Yeah, as you said, an outdoor event. Gee, what do you think might happen, Simon? The level of risk. The opportunity cost, which I don't think we think about very much. We're doing this event, and all these staff and volunteers are spending time doing the event, and what aren't we doing? What's the cost of a missed opportunity? And in my experience, it's frequently personal, face-to-face, -face, major gift solicitation. I don't mean street fundraising. I mean I sit down with my colleague, Ted Hart, and ask him for a contribution. Right. And you know, we're, that's a huge opportunity. Look, when it comes down to ROI, do you, is it your experience that nonprofit organizations are taking 
everything that they need to into account when they're looking at special events. Well, I don't think so. My experience is that they don't factor in things like staff time, volunteer time, and uh, uh, opportunity cost. I agree with you completely. In my experience, they're not taking into account the staff time. I mean, after all, the staff exists to do work. But and, and, you know, remember when Brittany said our board members are so busy? I'd rather have board members doing personal face-to-face solicitation, major gift requests, and partnership with staff than selling tickets to an event. Right. Yeah. But it is far more common. So you, you were talking about um, your plan, Chapter 9 of your book, uh, talks about a plan that produces ownership and results. Um, who owns the plan? Well, I want to go back to what you said earlier, Ted, which is the the fund development plan, just like the institution strategic plan, need to be owned by the entire institution. Every single person in it, volunteer, board member volunteers, and staff. And so we have to engage all of those stakeholders, as well as our clients, in the process of planning so that we understand why we came up with that fundraising plan and so that we own it. And I don't think you can own something if you don't understand it, and I don't think you can own something if you didn't have a voice in talking about it. So that's why process is so for, so important for me. Yeah, and, and what, do you, what in your mind should be the outcome of that process? I, mean, I, I understand it should be collaborative. I understand that, you know, from both of our perspective. For a lot of uh, my listeners today, uh, they may be too heavily weighted towards um, uh, uh, events. Um, How do you break out of that mold, and what do you replace it with? Well, I think that, that ultimately the process is supposed to produce a written fundraising plan, which summarizes, if you will, all of the activities we're going to do in fundraising to support operations and anything else this year, and that by approving that plan, every single board member agrees they will take a part of it, and that's how we generate this sort of list of choices, menu of choices that we then negotiate with board members to do. Nothing goes in the plan if somebody won't do it or help do it. And it's a written plan that the the staff uses that the fund development committee looks at and that the board looks at and monitors progress regularly. Well, I think, I think that's a, a powerful statement that, that you just made that I don't want to let it slip away and that, that someone has to own every part of the plan. And I, I think oftentimes um, there may be a single staff person, maybe the executive director, maybe a very small staff. Um, the plan might be signed off by the board, but it's still owned by one person. And yeah. What does that mean for the organization's success? Well, it means that the person who ha- who is the ultimate, if you will, facilitator and enabler of the plan better be pretty darn good at their job of facilitating, enabling, and getting work done. And so if you have development staff, you know, it's typically the chief development officer who owns that plan and then helps everybody else participate in it. If, as you say, um, Ted, you're a small organization, then the executive director is the chief development officer, and he or she owns the plan and assures its implementation. 
And, and what's the board's role in oversight but also involvement? I mean, is it more oversight or is it they own the, the uh, plan in its execution as well? I think the board as a group owns oversight and owns execution. And as individual board members, they own carrying out specific tasks. I have been in situations myself as a chief development officer where I had to go to the board and say, something changed and part of this plan will no longer work and we will have to make changes and here are my recommended changes and how to do it and why we have to make this change. And if we are unwilling to do these additional activities because of the change, then my CEO stepped in and said, and if we're unwilling to do that, then we're going to have to cut expenses. You know, Simone, I, I know that you never back away from being provocative, so I've got a tough question for you that I'm, I'm hoping that you can give us uh, some insight into. It's it's something that, that has been coming to, to the forefront for me over the last uh, maybe 18 months or so in various organizations I've, I've interacted with, um, and that is we have been advocating as a profession uh, for many, many years in the bylaws of an organization that there should be tenure and rotation for board members, and typically we view that as good governance would be two, three-year terms and then a rotation off from the board uh, for, uh, uh, for good governance. But what is not discussed is the optimum length of time for the tenure of an executive director. Uh, yeah, that's a really... That's a really tough one, and I'm I'm glad you're making me think about that. Um, I knew you, you were know, the that I could put that in safe hands with. What do we do with that question? Well, and and I don't, you know, there's a part of me, and I'm thinking about a particular executive director that I know right now, who I think has been in the position 15 years, perhaps, and is extraordinary and continues to change as the, you know, learns new things, forces herself to change as the world changes. And so there's this very, very large part of me, Ted, that believes that we don't, that we don't need to establish an automatic tenure limitation rotation with staff if, in fact, the staff are growing and changing. I'm going I'm I'm to just challenge you here. Yeah, exactly. I, on that on that topic, um, because I'm wondering if we say that for executive directors, are we right about right. tenure and rotation about boards of directors? Yeah, I know. And you know, you could have sent me an email and said, told me you were going to ask me this tough <laughs> question. <laughs> but I know that you're up for it. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. So I'm probably going to back myself into a corner here, but bear with me. So why do I believe very strongly in tenure and rotation of board members? I like I like that the tenure is like two or three year term, and I like that people can serve, you know, typically two consecutive terms, like six years, and get off. And I think, and the reason why I want that in board members is because. <clears throat> They are not as deeply involved in the organization, so they may not 
see how they need to learn and change and grow. I see them as this one step outside the CEO, or several steps outside, and hence, and that arm's length makes me want them not to get too comfortable as they're on the board. I don't always, let's see, I don't know that I always trust board members to learn and educate themselves as much as perhaps they would benefit from. Now, all that said, then the then contrasting that, if you will, to the, the CEO, it means that I'm expecting a CEO to be constantly learning, right, to constantly be adjusting to the environment, to being the person who comes in and challenges the board, just as the board needs to challenge the CEO. So there's this part of I bring of it me, up I not, th- not to, to, uh, to put you on the spot because I, I know no, that – that you you deeply think about these topics by bring it up more as a strategic issue yeah. of of thinking through these 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 topics because what, what it, and, and it's it's something that I've been I, I don't have an answer for it either and and I and I'm not sure that that on on the final few moments of this call that we're going to get to an answer on that but I view it as more of a strategic issue because over time I mean I I totally agree with tenure and rotation until such time that the CEO has been there outlasting the longest board member and the balance of power now shifts. And the question that I always have, and, I, and, I, and I'm not sure that there is a single answer, but how do we guide organizations if there is no single answer, uh, is what is the appropriate balance of power between the board and the CEO and how do you maintain that over a longer period of time if the tenure of the CEO is longer than the tenure of the board, uh, just as much as uh, you could have the same problem if you had no tenure in rotation and the board was packed with people that had been there for 25 years. Uh, so I just throw that out there. We yeah. have a couple of minutes left. Uh, so I wanted to throw that out as a strategic uh, challenge for something that people like you and I should be thinking about in the nonprofit sector. Okay, so here's my pledge to you. I've written this down. I'm challenged by it. I'm going to think about it, and I'm going to do, and I'm going to write one of my columns in the nonprofit quarterly about it. How's that? And I hope you'll come back here on the nonprofit coach and tell us all about your deep thinking on that topic because I think it is provocative, and that's why I brought it up to Simone Joyo here on the nonprofit coach today. Simone, we only have a few moments left. How can our listeners reach you? Uh, they can reach me through my email. And my email address is S like Simon, P like Patricia, J O Y A U X at AOL dot com. I blog weekly, so if you send me if somebody sends me something or a question, I'll blog about it. I'll possibly add it to my web column in the nonprofit quarterly, and I always respond to emails with questions. Right, and you'll be back here on the Nonprofit Coach sharing us your thoughts on tenure and rotation and the longevity of executive directors. Simone Joyo, thank you for joining us here on the Nonprofit Coach. Thank you. You've been listening to the Nonprofit Coach Radio Show with Ted Hart. 
Tell all your friends to check out our production schedule and download our iPod and iPad-friendly podcast at tedhart.com. Thanks for listening to The Nonprofit Coach.